This episode is sponsored by Anchor.fm. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain. Basically, it's free. Secondly, there's creation tools that allow you to record and also edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. And after which, Anchor will automatically distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other platforms. You can also make money from your podcast with literally no minimum listenership. So it's everything you basically need in a podcast in one place. So go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started today. Okay, so aesthetic appreciation, right? Yeah. So our eyes, you know, like this is something that I've been thinking for some time, which is already quite, you know, it's it's like a known concept. You know how there's known, like there's things, there's dynamics in this world that you just know because you're a part of that nature. So you intuitively are familiar with that conceptualization, but you're not, you know, familiar with putting it into a particular term or under a particular headline or whatever. Our eyes are like an entity of its own which thrives or which feels alive. Focusing on the aesthetics in the external immediate environment. So our, our eyes focus you know, automatically or, you know, continuously looks for objects in our aesthetic visual field, which are pleasing to it. And so we choose always, like all the time, we choose to see what we see. Yes. Because our eyes want to see it because there's a certain aesthetic, curious, you know, element about, you know. You're saying the opposite. You're saying that the gaze is unconscious. No, but she's saying that it's directed by our distinct desire. Things yeah. we're attracted to. Yeah, it is definitely to a higher degree unconscious because we don't know exactly what drives us to, you know, seeing a particular visual among visuals. I think that there are two alternatives when looking. Either you're actually conscious and deciding truly mm-hmm. where you look, or you're just free-flowing and, and letting your head spin to wherever your eyes want to go. I don't yeah, like the I, use of the word unconscious. It's definitely unconscious. Yeah, it is definitely. Because yeah, like, to a certain degree, almost you know, any action it's, it's semi, can be... It's semi-conscious. No, I don't like the, the distinction between conscious and unconscious. Okay, well, so yeah, it's subconscious. In this, case, in this case, it is semi-conscious, but... No, <laughs> no, that's not what I mean. What I mean is, inherently, there shouldn't be levels between subconscious, unconscious, conscious, whatever, awareness. Right, but there it's all one spectrum. You're, yeah. you, are deci- you are your unconsciousness. You are consciously deciding what goes in your unconsciousness. Same way as I no. firmly believe that every breath you take is conscious. Mm. And what you direct your eyes towards Look, is it, conscious. In the case of, of your cerebellum, uh, it, it's a shifting between conscious and unconscious. Right now, I'm particularly conscious of my breathing, but that doesn't mean that I am all the time, and so that w- that's the only reason why I can't have a fully extending diaphragm uh, every every minute uh, as much as I wish I could. It, it's the same as you know. I wish I were to be seeing beauty continuously and and were aware of what I'm looking at at all times, but you know, like for example, when I'm crossing the road. I'm particularly aware of where I'm looking um, because
because I want to strategically get past the road as quickly as possible. So that might be an automatized uh, action, but it's very conscious. Well, on the other hand, if I'm sitting down calmly on a bench, I just let my head turn to wherever it wants to, because I'm in a relaxed state, and that is where the gaze is. But do you not recognize that wherever it wants to is a function of you, things you've chosen to bring, to equip yourself with, to that point? Things you've grown up around? Yeah, but that is, doesn't make much of a difference. Like, uh, that's just a, uh, an array of attributes that you may have, you know, that, that you've recollected. It's relevant. But, you know, the, the more interesting approach would be in the moment, you know, rather than this is the distinction between diacritics and It's not the first time we disagree on that. Yeah, because the, the distinction is should we take a diachronous historical approach to the individual or should we take a present and, you know, a holistic approach in the moment of whatever is, is being seen, you know? Like, I'm, am I going to define myself in clusters of information? So I, I have an answer to that. Yeah. If you define yourself by the surroundings, you are your surroundings. What, how you should act, what you desire, what is happening in that moment is uh, just a function of that moment existing, for, and henceforth is what, what you're saying. What I'm saying is that let's talk specifically about head movements and what you, what your eyes look at. You're saying that it's a function of of that situation alone, holistic situation. You find yourself in. That's how the situation will dictate itself. I'm saying that what you bring into that situation from the past is how you navigate through that situation. And so my answer to distinguish between those two things is that this, the, the former, the one you're saying, is that's the approach and the truth insofar as your goals are outside of you. Don't involve yourself. Because you're saying my approach is more individualistic. It's what the individual has brought to the table. An individual who has existed before, continues to exist now, and will exist afterwards. I think that's also important, that the individual will exist afterwards. You're saying none of that matters. What exists is, it is in front of you. And so that viewpoint is uh, relevant only insofar as what should happen in that, the outcome of that is uh, entirely outside of yourself. If you have a... Uh, but that's not our, our debate right now. Like, we're not discussing the existence of anything. We're discussing how does the strange floating nebula that is the, the psyche-body-subject interface interact with the reality in front of it, and specifically in regards to vision and, and awareness of that. We're not even being aware of whether there's something outside or not. We're just judging of how outsideness plays with, with our inward mechanisms. So, um, it's... It's the matter of free will is key here, yes, and, and you do sort of achieve that free will in this absolute other, in this absolute uh, outsideness. Um, or in the absolute opposite case, which is insideness, it's individuality. Okay, it's yeah, assuming because, that I mean, it goes back, right? I mean, you, to be able to recognize the subject, you, you, need to, you need this absolute object, and vice versa, in some way. Right now, we're discussing more the sense of selfhood rather than, than the sense of the outside, because you know, in in your first assertion, there's already that that division between surroundings and me, as if no, I choose. No, we we both like, see that differently. You're saying the surroundings is other. I'm saying the no. surroundings is what you see in other. It is crafted by what you bring okay. to that situation. You okay. see what I mean? Yeah, that's fine. Right. But but like, I I, I that's an axiom. 
you know, and like it's two separate accents. The imaginary is always in in the back of our heads, you know, creating the reality before us. Like I, I agree there, um, but in, in your first assertion, uh, you. Um, you, you establish uh, a dualism between the individual and their environment by saying, I become the environment or I am the environment only when I identify with it, which is not the case. You are the environment already. Not only are you creating it, but it, you know, this, this environment, which is almost you know, its own entities, is having an effect on you. And this fundamentally is you at an unconscious level affecting yourself. So you are the space between yourself and other yeah in, inevitably because you know you're, you're in that spectrum I don't so i think so i think you retain a kernel of yourself axiomatically a starting point the zero 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 of your axes mm, yeah but you know once the information gets ricocheted back into the subject it's indistinguishable from having what information gets ricocheted back to the subject that's what i'm saying that's what we should be asking ourselves. You know, the moment at which this imaginary baggage which we carry around clashes with, with our conscious uh, present and, and, you know, whatever judgment uh, uh, impact might have on us, you know, or whatever judgment is elicited on us by nature of a phenomenon happening, which we can't deny. You know, there is novelty. This is, you know, this is a crazy thing that somehow we can apprehend more knowledge so my, my point however is, is different it's that in these moments of apprehending new knowledge of unconscious and conscious merging there is always a point of optimal action which you could take so the moment you know and, and you might have different starting points in this precise instant might I have different from, uh, definitions of the goal let's say that I should always be breathing with my diaphragm all the time and so sometimes I be I might be uh, anxious, and and so literally my breathing is shortened. This means that you know I'm at a more removed state from being at a perfect optimal degree um, of breathing, and that would mean that I'm fully conscious of um, being there. Yeah. Of wanting to not breathe in with your diaphragm every time. So you decide to put that on autom automatic. Right. The question is whether the decision is to just activate automatic uh, habits or whether the decision is to consciously have thought think itself in, in some sense. Maybe there's no distinction fundamentally. What, but, you know, what you're saying, if I were to understand your question, uh, the question is whether you put effort into trying to tap into that uh, automatic to, to like resurrect that automatic thing that's going on to consciously breathe in with your diaphragm every time because that takes effort until it becomes muscle memory and muscle memory I think is equivalent to subconsciousness but not unconsciousness which I think is I think it's a dominating uh, th I think vision tends to be unconscious this is the, the, the thing and Sajana's argument is that the reason why we gaze around is because we are looking for aesthetic objects of pleasure or, or for pleasure. I think we're looking to learn. That wasn't Sajana's argument. It was that we just, we exist and, in order, and, and you know, we need injections of pleasure in our existential being 
and a way of doing that is to perceptually move around the visual field and to move around looking for for objects in movement um, and that gives us pleasure no, but so you're saying our goal is to distinguish our being no 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 absolutely not if anything it's to recognize how our being is distinguished how why are there moments in which we need pleasure because we are not fully conscious of our being and, and you know cannot tolerate not having pleasure in that moment it's the same reason why we move our bodies sometimes right okay. you know it, it, like the, the reason why we look around uh, and and you know and then try to find well, the question is the extent to which you want the extent to which you are uh, happy content with your current pleasure right that's so that's the key here yeah the, not current pleasure having but current pleasure needing effort want. putting into getting so yeah yeah you know but, but that but that's an unconscious process that's the thing so the, the moment not not the moment that you look but the moment that unconscious looking activity is reached that which tends to be at a, at a moment of calmness you know sitting down just you know freely gazing around we should, we should go outside and i'm down i'm down go um, become enlightened so the idea here is that yes you could ideally be fully conscious of whatever is going on but the way that we're using conscious and unconscious here um i think is is more related to how how much dominance are you having over your environment in a way how free are you being in this moment and how free is your desire with your will in some sense so uh, I think that there's no distinction between me being conscious of wanting to cross the road and looking everywhere in an automatized habit, um, which is not to say that it's not fully conscious and active in thought. There's no distinction between that and sitting around and, and, and letting my head spin. There's no distinction. There's no input from you to decide your level of uh, grasping onto your automatic processes. No, I, I'm saying that fundamentally since my, my freedom is aligned with my desire or my will is aligned with my desire that it doesn't matter whether it's conscious or unconscious it's optimized this yes is, yeah so but that also goes to show that unconscious and conscious are the same they're on the same spectrum without a doubt and it's it's not even that the unconscious and the conscious are on the same spectrum it's that dynamics in our in our psyche the psychical psychological categories are all in, in the spectrum of conscious and conscious and when they're done correctly they're you know they're they're simply reaching at the optimal amount of data what input do you have into making them run correctly it, it's like a control panel and you decide in sort of levels awareness once more it's, it's awareness. It's like, how, how aware are you of your whole body, your environment, how the wind is hitting you, what the air smells like, the, the exact temperature, the uh, climate, and how, you know, and, and how the light is, is, you know, changing reflections continuously of cars floating around and you. And that's just three to name maybe 3,000. Yeah. Right. So, like, uh, but at, at, there's a point, there, there, there are points at which all of these imaginary entities which are always in the back of your head 
become instantly apprehended. They become you draw from them. You say this I need now. This I don't need. Now. No, what I'm, what I'm this is my my assertion, which I I don't know if I'm right or wrong here, but there is a point at which every single one of these clusters or simple uh, pods of existential. Let's being, call them inputs. The sun hitting beings. Your face. Beings. I don't know. The, the, we have to give it a name. A name has to... Let's say that the sun is a being the same way that a plant is... Ex and potential experiences, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Um, you are free to experience, to be conscious of them. The sun is hitting your face, but you're not even aware of it. Right. They're, they're unhatched eggs of possible identification with your surrounding. Possible identification with the external. A point at which your existence can be determined by this absolute other existing, right? So I see. The, like, and so you know, you become yourself more the more aware you are, but because we're distancing yourself more and more from the ego and simply being aware of the present moment in its holistic complexity. So that is the goal. The, the, the way that, re that you reach that optimization, the way that you cross the the crosswalk in a you know, optimal way in a, in a style, uh, in a, in a uh, you know, fashionable walking. Uh, I, I can't come up with the word now. In a graceful uh, gait, uh, in a optimal affect ratio where your emotions are also aligned, um, at a point where you're paying attention to everything that you need you to pay need attention to at yes. the moment. You know, that string of factors of like perfection. You're really. always there though. You're always there. That defines you. No. People are there at no. different levels. Okay. That's, you, that's no, another actually, argument. Actually, I'm not talking about others. I'm, you are often there at different levels. You experience different states of these awareness. One day you're crossing the same street and you're aware of more things. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. But, you know, so maybe we, we have to say that this perfect optimal point of our bodies and, and psyches. And awareness. And awareness of our surroundings. Eggs. Unhashed eggs. And, 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 right, uh, I mean, the unhatched eggs are virtually infinite. It's infinite, right? yes. But Every cell in your body. Yeah. Technically. Yeah. Um, but there is a moment, I believe, in which, you know, it's enough to see the beak of the, of the hatchling coming out. I don't think it's infinite. I think the number is in the tens of no, but, okay, quintillions. But forget, about, forget about the imaginary eggs, the imaginary nests. Sound. So, um, forget about the the eggs in the back of our heads. At the moment where one of these eggs roll to the to the, the surface of our conscious awareness, it's enough to see the beak of the hatchling in order to get a sense of all of the rest of the of the eggs in some sense of the possible hatchlings of the eggs, because. Because they affect that, it it is a product of the other eggs. The way the wind is hitting your face to is a product of the To some extent, eggs. to some extent, but at a, at a transcendental level. Not know? even, not even. I think it's all materialistic. The way the wind is hitting your face is one of those potential nests, as we call them. Yeah, and then that's what affected what, what, by. Yeah. If you observe that, that in itself is a portal into. It's the beakling of. It's the beak of the hatchling, into but into the world of other nests that you're not even aware of. So it's it's like a domino onto the next potential thing that you can be aware of. Right, right. yes, but I, in, I agree. Wait, but in the sense that that itself is, is affected by the wind hitting your face, is affected by the cars around you, mm. which you could have also observed 
directly. And the cars around you are acting in a way that is a function of the wind hitting them. I was looking at it from, from the epistemological point of view, though, not the yeah, ontological no, one. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so well, it, it's yeah. a little bit like the Schrodinger thing. Like, you have a beetle in a box. Is there any way for me to know that you have a beetle in a box? No. I have no clue, because I can't see it. Okay. So uh, the, the idea here is that just by seeing the antler of the beetle, I can tell that all the most boxes for, for what, are probably. Why did, why did I do that? So this is the logic here, which is weirdly totalizing and might be even reductionistic. The fact that I know that there might be a beetle in that box because I've seen or I've heard fluttering in that box that yes. sounds like a beetle means that any box that I see also has a beetle. Or, mm -mm. I know, I know. I know the generalization that I'm making. But th there's something to it in only relation in so to our analogy. As, only insofar as that box exhibits properties adjacent to you. So on the first box. I'm not talking about seeing a little antler. I'm not talking about hearing scuttling. I'm talking about if you integrate that upwards. And the very feeling that there might be a beetle in that box. Some indication that is so minute. It's one of the quadrillions of potential nests. Yeah? Let me finish the thought about the beetle in the box. I got by it as well. So the beetle in the box, you see a beetle, you, you have no idea of knowing where, whether the beetle is in the box. But then you see the little antler. Okay, you have an indication that there might be, we're pretty, pretty sure there's a beetle in the box. Then you see, then let's not talk about the antler, let's talk about the little scuttling sound. Okay, uh, also indication. Let's talk, let's go upwards, let's just go more and more minute. The very air in the room is changed by the fact that there's movement in the box. There is an extent to which you perceive that. And you're saying that there might be a beetle in any box, and I'm saying there might be a beetle in any box only insofar as if you take both of those ideas upwards. Of The first upwards idea is you physically, you visually see, you feel the beetle, then maybe you have an indication that there's a beetle via sound, via whatever, via the moving particles in the air, via whatever. You asymptotically reach some point of infinity where there's some sort of chain of events that might yeah, and then if you go up that branch and down the neighboring branch to another box, then that box is identical to the box only insofar as that wh where that branch converges. Okay, so you're making a, a physical argument. I think the world it. is physical. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm not that. I, I'm. I prefer to call it organic. If we're gonna make a sort of argument like that, but my claim is. Agrees, but is uh, I'm fishing back the the thought that I had. Um, right. it's, it, it, it's the idea that with this optimal, intentional, phenomenological channeling that you can do, which is simply being, um, because there is optimal points in being, any box that you open, and regardless if it's a beetle or not, let's assume that every single box that you open is a beetle. Has a beetle? It has a beetle, yeah, inside um, whenever you see it, it's going to be the exact same experience replicated in each opening of that box. Mm. I didn't catch that. The, the, Could the, you try again? The reason being that the, the same way that they're asymptotically connected in causal chains, which are contingent, you know, they're not necessarily cause and effect exactly, um, the same way that physically that might be the explanation, I'm saying that at a at an experience at a pure experience level of whatever you're dealing with since fundamentally 
all of these beetles uh, share the same quality of existing. Any beetle that you encounter is a portal to any single beetle That's that he could find. Yeah. Again, only insofar as that shares a splitting point in the branch sometime in ontological history, let's call it that, um, with, the, with the first beetle. There's always a third man argument. Right. Um, but I'm still not from that perspective. But, but in order for you to be right, then you have to, you have to be the carrier of that portal to the other beetle. You're the vessel sure. which carries the, the very... Because sure. you, you've seen the n another beetle. There might be a beetle in the second box which sh sh shares experience. But that doesn't matter anymore. The, the idea is that the nature of experience is that it's univocal, is that it's, it's recurrent uh, presence. That's because, because all of those branches converge at some point. Not Maybe. only observing beetles, but making coffee. Maybe. All the branches yeah. converge. Yeah, but the, like, what I'm saying is that that's irrelevant because you have these optimal points. Oh, you have to explain where physically, spatially, those optimal points exist in relation to the tree I just described. Look, I, I think that the idea of flow, for example, in today's cognitive productivity talk of being in flow, of being fully focused in a sort of meditative state of mind in which your body is moving well, you know, your thoughts are in line, you're not wasting any thoughts, barely any. That, that state is, is closer to what I'm talking about in the sense that when you're in, in a flow state, you are doing good automatically. You are in, in an optimal both existential point and also contextual meaning point. Absolutely. For yourself. So, for you. You are the entity in the flow state, whether that be the entire universe, which arguably it is right now. Right. Or you. Because you're in presence of being. Right. So wh why, why do you think there's a friction between my individualistic prescription of what one should do um, existentially and maybe your question, which is the, what should everyone do? You know, because I think my prescription is good enough for everyone to follow, right? But maybe it's not. So what is your, why, why does your, what, do you think we're in disagreement? Because I feel like like what you're saying is that it's it's for you, you know. So it's not democratic. It's as if what you're hoping for Absolutely. is is for everyone to be enlightened at the same time. You know? I think everyone is enlightened. Everything is as it is. Every word I would say now, the order in which I construct my sentence, is a function of my having been a part of this tree to begin with. I'm just the branch playing its role, or just continuing its growth. But, yes, but that's just the an intellectualization of being. It's like, okay, yes, you, you were at some point physically this other form. You know, you've been sort of reincarnated in the very nature of atomism. But that has little to do with your experiential being. Like I don't think so. Right now you're just feeling your body and deciding to identify yourself retroactively with the tree when you could just be sort of identifying yourself with this body saying yeah I'm, I'm this 
whatever age bonobo. I've been taught to identify myself with this body. If my yeah, parents had me... But you're, you don't always, you know, you're not always super conscious of your body or, or how it looks like. You know, so upon looking at it, you can either decide, okay, yes, I am always this body, or maybe not. You know, maybe my, my sense of self is actually repartitioned among the many beings that I that I fool myself to believe that are separate from me. There's an I that is making that sentence. There's an I that is making that observation. That I itself is whatever that I identifies with in the beginning. I don't think you can overwrite that retroactively. You, you know what I mean? You say, mm-hmm. I have this body, I identify with this body, sure. But the I that is choosing to identify with this body is already an I that has identified with this body. But it's beyond, right? I, I see your point that there is sort of an a priori substrate. so far up the tree to, to redo, to undo that. To see yourself as outside of your body. You have to first reach a point... I don't necessarily agree. You have to reach a point that's so far back up the branching of the tree is a, a, a sort of a point from which everything started diverging in order to follow as a separate branch. You go up and then down. And then you're only other to that in relation in the sense that only every sort of upwards node you've been other, but at some point you converge. Somebody, you diverged once part in history. So when you see other in relation to yourself, I see you guys, I can't define myself as you. I, I am you because I'm, because I see that point of convergence in our evolution. Which is? Materialistic evolution. Give me, give me more precision in the, de- in the example. Of this con- of this convergence or deconvergence, like where is this taking place? Is it in you realizing that we were born in different spatio-temporal coordinates, or or is it you right now in in being having a a distinct feeling of what otherness is? But even my distinct feeling of what otherness is is a function of the branch that I'm part of. You're imagining these branches. Yeah, okay. I used to, uh, when I was writing a final work for English literature back in IB, uh, I was doing a, an analysis on, on the book, the graphic novel Mouse, which you might have heard of. It's by Art Spiegelman. It's a graphic novel, so it's full of, it's basically like a comic book. But it's about um, everyone's a, mou- a mouse. Jews are mice. Poles are pigs. Oh, yeah, 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 and yeah, Germans yeah, are yeah, cats. Yeah. And it's in uh, black and white. It's, it's so good. So, so we discussed one of them, which is, you know, aesthetic appreciation. So second point, you know, is one of the things that I was thinking about yesterday, reading, you know, this magazine called Double Line. Um, they're actually really good in terms of maintaining, uh, you know, contemporary psychedelic pop culture, uh, media literature online and through their webinars and everything. So I was reading their issue four, which discusses a lot of shamanistic and ritualistic traditions. And so, you know, I was thinking about modern day shamanism. And so, so I was also reading at the same time, Strassman's book on DMT and the soul of prophecy. And so I was reading about, you know, what is a false prophet? Who, who, who is a false prophet? So there was this one line which said, false prophet is a person who delivers the false message right those pre-socratics you know those sophists were 
you know, unvirtuous in the, in the sense that they would teach the art of persuasion and rhetorics, but for monetary gains, so for, you know, a value of fee. And so in traditional shamanism, shamanism is seen as a way of, you know, pure healing. And so there's usually no, because it's spirituality, you know, there's usually no gain, you know, self-interest, do it. If you're a true shaman, you know, whatever true shaman means. And so I was thinking, you know, that way we can just say that shamanism is a return to, you know, being sophist, at least, you know, when we see through a commercial lens or whatever. And so a false prophet would also come in that category, which is very much visible, you know. We have a lot of religious leaders like Kenneth Copeland, you know, delivering the false message or manipulating the deliverance of the message. And so I drew a parallel between all those three, you know, time We should explore periods. that. Can I yeah. give you my counter-argument to the sophist being, or what is the relationship between false messages or false prophecy? And yeah, 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 go ahead. So, um, and and keep in mind that the false prophecy, like the false message here, could also be a false prophet is trying to tell you the message that you want to hear the mo- most. You know, yeah. In relation to this last one, you know, does the prophet have a perfect marketing campaign? You know, uh, not necessarily. So, I think to to some degree, the only distinguishable factor in between these new false prophets is simply the monetary aspect they're still somewhat uh, of they still have somewhat of a recognizable mastery in their craft the same way that the sophists were masters of logic if the if the sophists were masters of logic and had knowledge the shamans too they're still masters in some sense, you know, they, they, they... Good, good, but, you know, the question comes in, what makes a, a master, a guru, a teacher, the truest essence of whatever it means to be a teacher or a guru, right? Yeah, so yeah. there has to be some kind of moral, yeah. ethical implications to it. Fair enough, yeah. If you're a pure or true shaman, you would heal the person for the sake that the person needs healing. Yeah. You know, but, like, you would never see beyond the healing element right. of the intestine. It's like watching a film by a director who might be a neo-Nazi. Does him being a neo-Nazi make his film less of a of a of an artistic experience? Uh, you know, does, does the quality of art deteriorate in, in relation to the type of character that the director had? If if you're, I think an open researcher you will go to these individuals which might have an ugly history but may still be saying something relevant like Giovanni Gentile for example mm-hmm. the, they called him the philosopher of fascism by excellence he was in, in Mussolini's intimate circles well, clearly you know he has this historical uh, hue of, of you know being authoritarian, clearly politically wrong, but does this mean that him politically wrong? You <laughs> reading Hegel is also 
in, at a lack of correspondence between truth. You know, the same way that he that he fucked up politically is he fucking up in his understanding of Hegel? Not necessarily. You know, so that's that's my only argument in relation to the the credibility, quote unquote, to the message of these individuals. I think that yes, the truest possible shaman won't be charging fees, and that make me, might make his practice better. But I think there's still knowledge to be extracted, even out of these possibly corrupt masters, and especially with the, with the sophists, who are just re- remarkable unfolders of whatever argument you give them, uh, and you know they they manage to fold it back outwards at out at you the the exact same thing that you said, um, you know, but but framed in a way where what you said is exactly contradicting the point that you made. So that, that is what, what a sophist is capable of doing. And so there, I think there, there's, once again, there's admirable mastery to be observed at, at least in, in the possible creation, you know. Um, the thing is that, that the element of the shaman that is a lot more people or interaction-oriented um, is radically distinct than, you know, the, the necessary carrying space carrying environment that uh, you know something like the sophists don't really require in their practice because it's a different uh, craft so I think uh, because your discussion is, is of message you know but if we leave it to message which is a type of hermeneutic a type of understanding of, of you know, what is being said originally what, what is the meaning tra- tr- trying to be transmitted um, if the, the meaning exists outside of in the world as an anthropological locus, uh, it, it, you know, it, it's, it's irrelevant to how me as an individual might partake in the being a, a, a disciple of, of this master, you know, that my, 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 I'm always the master in some degree, you know, that, that is the, that is the thought process. Yeah, I mean, there's always possibilities and probabilities within these kind of, you know, thought experiments kind of thought experiments the, the, the key is that there's no message that is being sent by the prophet that you don't have access to that is the idea that is my, my argument what was your third point of interest so third point of interest being um, the resemblances between the potency of higher psychedelic states within classical hallucinogens you know so you take LSD and you take quite an excessive dose and you compare it with a 22 milligram DMT vaporized dose right and so what exact comparisons of you know having the same objective psychedelic state that does it come so you know Rick Strassman was saying yesterday that if you take enough LSD like he heard someone say that if you take enough LSD you may enter that DMT state, but it's obviously not inhabiting the DMT hyperspace realm because it's LSD. Yeah. So that so where does that you know distinction come in? So that's that's the point. That's dude. That's a really good thesis. You, you have know, to try a research subject like drugs. not even. That's, that's the issue that pharmacology is not studied in synergies. Yeah. Yeah. They're, 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 each drug is studied individually. 
not yeah. in relation to other drugs. But so now, wonderful. you know why? Because now we really need it because it's an era. So first of all, it's a psychedelic renaissance. Yeah. And second of all, it's like a era of mixing different psychoactive drug drugs in a street setting and a party setting, whatever. So people, I mean, you know, <laughs> that, that, that's a sort of less kosher argument than saying that we're in a synthetic. No, but we need know. this research now because there's a trend. You know, there's a there's a trend of using different substances with different substances and we do that every day dude like everything reacts with everything in 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 a, any kind of minimal state you know yeah, that would be like an integral pharmacology which is not done yeah that's what i'm saying yeah, it's a yeah. great you know research topic so if anyone out there is a graduate student you know it's fucking copyrighted. Don't take this <laughs> idea, dude. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna explore it. I'm gonna Just explore it. Just be a new Timothy Leary. It's been <laughs> 60 years since the first psy- uh, psychedelic uh, renaissance. Now, dude. if you're saying now is the time, then that's the same message Leary was saying in his book, The Psychedelic. So there's an image around Timothy Leary. There's two images, in fact, which, you know, kind of govern the, po- the narrative around him within the popular psychedelic culture which is that either he he's seen in the light that you know he was a person who popularized all these chemicals so you know now we're here at the stage uh, you know of legalization and advancements and everything and some people see him as the cause of that major you know 20 year or so break with no absolute scientific research being possible because no one took this subject seriously he because of the way he propagated it and he yes. wasn't wrong you know but his method no, he provo- irritated yeah it provoked the right yeah so nixon you know was like fuck me or whatever yes you have to yeah. find a way to not get under the authorities nose but not provoke them either you know he was just a little bit too reckless and I feel like, you know, Richard Nixon in general had a very anti-drug, anti-Jew, anti... He changed the, the worldview of most cultures of what drugs were. Who? Uh, the war on, oh, no, it wasn't that Reagan, the, the war on drugs. Nixon. Nick, Nixon. It was Nixon? Yeah, okay, Nixon. Yeah. Yeah. So, because of that fucker, yeah. we have a DEA now. We have... I mean, I'm not saying that drugs shouldn't be regulated i'm just saying yeah, but like, to, to the degree they're being regulated now it's just it's they must be researched now. people would benefit from having altered state of consciousness yes but yeah the, the issue is that people haven't even opened themselves up to that idea you know there's a large degree of people that are still consumed by the taboo of the blanket statement of drugs yes absolutely that that is the issue you know that we can but we, today we start online to fix. online people are exposed to so many ideas that just but, take but it's a new generation it. Yeah, but 60 years later, it's, it's been 60 years since the first... Yeah, yeah. Many, many of those boomers did not have contact to it. Our parents, for example. No, they were within those 60 years. If you're saying now is the time, then now is the starting point to figure out a way to insert, to promote this research without provoking institutions. Yeah. Uh, and you can use the current tools at your disposal to do so and learn from Timothy Leary's... Learn the lessons from Timothy Leary's approach, which were ultimately resulted in the fucker and the DNA and etc. Yeah. DNA, DNA fucking DNA. DNA. Yeah, so a quick comment about Timothy Leary, right? Because, because psychedelics are such a culturally taboo subject, I feel like if anything, Timothy Leary should be recognized as an idol. I, I don't think, I mean, yes, definitely he did, you know, cause a 
a major break within the scientific research, but I still feel like if it wasn't for him, maybe it wouldn't have been popularized to yes, an extent. Yeah, maybe yeah. a lot of people might have not tried that medicine, which psychedelic truly is, you know. But be careful, because you have to idolize him. I agree with you and disagree with you. He's not an idol, full stop. Because if you no, he's not an because idol. We're Jews. But no, <laughs> we don't idolatrize. Yes, he's an idol in the sense that whenever you read any kind of psychedelic literature, you should and definitely one hundred percent read him. His no. Harvard essays are brilliant. I think he's an idol. You have to be careful with saying Timothy Leary is an idol because you've already shut off people who might be coming to your help, and they're already closed-minded and they hear Timothy Leary is an idol and they say, "No, that guy's a cunt." That's what I've been told all my life. He's a dangerous man. He's the most dangerous man in America. He was called by Nixon. So when you idolize him, you have to be careful. I idolize him only in the sense that I learn from his method and, and thus approach it with my own. Of I course, idolize 100%. him only that, that he's a giant of psychedelic culture and, and especially in psychedelic academia. He's a giant. 100%. Yeah. So now enter Charles Manson, right? So how would you compare, like, because because you know Manson was such a thing a few years ago whatever you know it's like so Manson was definitely the devilish Timothy Leary so T Timothy Leary nowhere you can compare him to Manson you know so yes definitely he did cause a break in whatever research which was going on but if, if it wasn't for him there was where you know this there was going to be very much yeah, less why, turnout why? in the hippie community why are you making a comparison with Manson? Just to just to you know, kind of like sh shade light on how how less of you know a terrifying thing Timothy did in comparison to what Manson did as a whole towards these psychedelic you know study significance. Because if anything, Timothy just paused it, but Manson was like, "Fuck hallucinogens," you know. It can f it's a dangerous compound. It's it's the perfect tool for propaganda, and so this. Did two he say that, or did he show that's possible? He literally did it. So he he, he brain, used, no, but he brainwashed people giving yeah, them psychedelics. Yeah, so he he engaged in you know that. So <laughs> you know, going back to resemblances, you know, it's it's definitely replication of some elements of the objective DMT state within higher LSD doses and like psilocybin doses. But what makes DMT have its own hyperspace, but not LSD and psilocybin? Is it because of the duration, or is it because of nuances within the chemical structure of the compound? So that's a good. That's a really good research. You know, well, like I'm definitely gonna get into it. What? What part of it is conscious? The very difference between DMT and and a fuck ton of LSD. If you're mm -hmm. saying that they can go both get get you to the same place. Is the, is the conscious awareness that you took DMT or LSD. Maybe that in itself is a factor that affects the realm in which you end up being in. Because you're saying that there might be a difference between those realms in order to... Yeah, to it's the main thesis of, uh, of Strassman that... Yes, yeah, yeah, back to Strassman. Took a, a, yeah. a, a reality was more real than real. But there's, there's the DMT, the DMT reality, reality and there's the LSD I mean. reality. Yeah, that's, sure. that's why I'm saying, you know, why does DMT get to have its own hyperspace? dimension you know and like at least the the sensation or the pure sensation of being or existing within another dimension i think another way of looking at this is whether all of these states are are reserved to simply the psyche and to where the psyche could go you know like in 
talking about Timothy Leary, the Book of the Dead, and the experiences reported by Tibetan Buddhist monks are quite similar to high states of DMT, right? The deepest states of DMT. Um, and, and people have argued not only um, stress, but I've also heard that on mushrooms, doing different styles of tantric breathing, you can reach these DMT states. So I, I think that even in sobriety, and of course psychedelics are the, the tool to do these things, but even the goal of the yogi or of, uh, of the mystic is to reach the, these states through meditation. So perhaps, you know, the DMT realm is accessible to the yogis just by existing, just by breathing and living. It's, it's higher meditative states, but here it's like higher classical psychedelic states, you know? And, and yeah, but the way so they... what if a very high dose of psilocybin simply triggers more DMT production? It's po probably not possible because I don't think DMT, you know, the receptors that directly affect the the breakdown of DMT or whatever within your gut, it's not really suitable with the chemical structure of psilocybin or... or they might acid, be interfering you know? with yeah. each other in a mm. chemical way. Yeah, I don't think they're really, you know, yeah. I think but, that if you take... DMT with mushrooms, you do. You simply, oh, yeah, yeah. The mushrooms potentiate your DMT trip. One, that's why I'm saying, you know, there's definitely more need for research on interaction within different substances. Because, you know, there's candy flipping, which is MDMA and LSD. There's hippie flipping, which is mushrooms and, you know, something else. God knows what. But, you know, it's just, there's, there's a lot of, you know, interaction going on. So, the Lacanian knot, right, the Borromean knot, between imaginary and the symbolic, to a certain extent, that can be equated to the objective psychedelic state in a in a visual dimensional, you know, but it's light. Not a, but I don't know to what extent. The one to one equation is sort of overlapping on something like more fundamental, which is that the symbolic and the imaginary and their essential union is reality so but but okay what you're saying there is that the imaginary has this symbolic uh, backrest the you know the the combination of the imaginary and the symbolic yeah, because it's so distinct from reality and because on psychedelics we feel like we're per, you know perceiving two different realities and, and which is an illusion because it's like well, look, you look. see the reality heightened so you try to make a difference between the heightened reality and, and yeah, the but way what you category are you speaking sober. of right now what do you mean that look if we consider psychedelics psychomimetics let's say that uh, what defines the the psychotic or the extreme neurotic is that the symbolic is interpreted for the real I think I think that that is what do you mean by my the the conflation between the imaginary and the symbolic? It, it's it's really the real coming to life in imaginary clothes there you go, you within saw the, the yeah. symbolic. Yeah. So that's one thing, you know. Okay. Yeah. No, you literally saw it. Yeah. Because we're not talking about reality, the union between the, the the essential union between the symbolic and the imaginary, because mm -hmm. that is the reality. Like you're just you're essentially saying that hallucinations have a symbolic substrate, a linguistic uh, substance um, and and so 
they must have a symbolic counterpart to them. Like, the, the reason that a hallucination appears for a psychotic is because of the need to understand that, you know? It's, uh, it's still contained in signifiers, right? Mm-hmm. So, the, but the imaginaries are just the clothes. You know, it's very similar to what Strassman was saying yesterday. The, di- the divine appears to us necessarily clothed in the imagination. That is the only way for us to perceive it because it has to be indirectly perceived. It's the same thing for the hallucination, but what is it yeah. being indirectly perceived? Perceived is the, the, the fundamental memory of it, you know, the, the fundamental signifier, which is imaginary maybe in, in how you might experience it, which is, you know, interesting that the, the valve there between this imaginary intolerable experience that is only imaginary insofar as it's in your memory and that it was perceptual at some point is barred by this influx of the real outwards into the symbolic or the the other way around the symbolic uh, into the real it, it just means that uh, for psychotics they, they technically can be solved if the hallucination is treated as purely symbolic because that's what, what defines a hallucination yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with the point that, you know, the union between the imaginary and the symbolic produce the complete amalgamation of the real or whatever. Oh, dude, yeah, this clicked, like, you know, during the podcast, too, that, so, you know, how he was, at some point we were discussing the, the psychedelic experience and within a Jungian context, and so we were talking about you know, the emotive element like how a psychedelic experience is high on emotivity, right? Because, you know, the psychedelic experiences brings about um, certain sensations, certain hallucinations, which are archetypal in nature, which have, you know, meaning. When you're in a psychedelic state, within the psychedelic state, you can divide that experiential state within, you know, two different, having like two different elements. So one could be emotivity, slash personal, which is your personal, emotional, subjective significance with the experience. Mm-hmm. And so that comes under Jungian personal unconscious, right? Yes. And, and then you have the second uh, element being the, the exoteric part of the psychedelic experience. So, so you know, like the, the common, the objectives of the psychedelic experience, which are visual perceptional changes distortion of time but those um, are imaginary patterns that you're attributing to the psychedelics yeah but ah. empirically we so can you're always admitting that it's you who's experience who's bringing about your own other experience no i, I didn't mean it in that sense i meant it a a posteriori i mean like that after having the psychedelic experience she's attributing those categories of experience to to what taking to what being high in LSD is when you know it is a counterpart to the emotivity but but the question she poses to what extent is it other to what extent is it yourself individualistic egotistical aware and to what extent is it other no what I'm trying to define here is the two the the two the two elements of this psychedelic experiential state right so the first being emotivity slash personal significance to the experience the second being more of a collective so that's why i connect this thing to the collective unconscious like arising from the Mm -hmm. collective unconscious that you know these objective 
states, which is basically the empirical evaluation of the side effects of taking a drug, is that you know you have visual um, hallucinations, distortion in time, and all that stuff. So those things could be, you know, the objectives or or whatever. Never and so that in that way they're collective because they're a shared yeah. psychedelic experience because everyone gets those hallucinations. Everyone's having who who is tripping is having a distortion of time. Everyone who's taking Un, you know, undergoing a psychedelic experience has those common, you know, elements. Mm -hmm. So th those could be, you know, contributed to having uh, resemblance or resting under collective unconscious. So that's what came up into my mind yesterday. So yeah. it's like, you know, like analyzing the psychedelic experience through a Jungian um, psychoanalytical mm -hmm. lens or whatever. But we don't. We weren't earlier. We were talking about something very similar, except we weren't talking about psychedelics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it was. It, I, I don't uh, think the, we the have idea to be, of emotivity. Wait, I don't like, think we have to be in a psychedelic state to ha be having this discussion. One hundred percent. Like the, the the objectives, quote unquote, that Sanjana is talking about are categories of psychological reflection. Like that's you know th those are sure they're shared by everyone. But we're we're discussing here is whether the psychedelic experience is giving us any pod of truth directly, if if it's being delivered to us by the world presenting itself to us in the psychedelic experience, but that happens all the time. Well, let's put it this way: if you if you take DMT, you right now are composed of something of physical, chemical matter that you've eaten, that you drank, that you that brought you here. Your body is the elements which you consumed and yeah and you're then not so willing to imagine that taking DMT is you no, eating no, consciousness I, I, and, and no. you're consciousness. a neuropsychophysical model basically uh, let, me explain, let me explain and then if you eat food that you find close to your environment say you're a human who grew up in a field and you eat food from that field you will embody that field in a sense you will look like that field you're made of the things that you've eaten if I were to eat a banana it's not that foreign to me because bananas are grown all around the world uh, they've always been part of my diet. Part of me actually needs potassium, so to an extent they're intertwined with my evolution. Uh, but if I take DMT, it's a foreign thing. DMT came from somewhere else. It's, uh, it's like eating a piece of chocolate. Why is chocolate so tasty? Why is it? Because, because it's been crafted by some people somewhere else and then brought over to you in a way that's kind of cheating nature because without technology it wouldn't, wouldn't have been possible. So DMT comes from a foreign place. But now, DMT is allegedly... It's an endo... Uh, Genus compound? Yeah, endogenous. Yeah. Yes, that's word, what I'm yeah. saying. That's what I'm saying. It's endogenous in the sense that it doesn't make up your chemical composition as today. You take it from somewhere else. From no, but it's somewhere. allegedly produced by your own brain. Yeah, but in a very minuscule... By all human you know, brains. Very minimal. Extremely minimal. Which amount. only adds so to the wonder. So it doesn't really you know, equate to anything, but you can... No, but it does add to the wonder, because if it already exists within you, but then you take it from somewhere so foreign to you, because it's been synthesized, it's been created, it exists in nature, but... There's it's a concentrated. Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, there's a process you have to undergo to get it to the table, so to speak, to your dining table. Then you take it, you've taken something that's so different from your what you're composed of, uh, from the things that already make you make you up, that your body reacts to that foreign substance that you had to it by having a psychedelic experience. But the, the whole process of rejecting the neural, uh, the neuro, the, the it binds to your neuroreceptors, and the process of rejecting that binding 
of the chemicals produced and the energy produced and the consciousness produced in rejecting that and bringing yourself back to a normal state is the trip itself, mm -hmm. is the psychedelic trip itself. Same way as the process of, uh, uh, how do you call it? processing a banana, if you were to eat a banana, the process of decomposing it in your body and uh, putting all of the pieces of the banana in their place and then what's not needed is excreted afterwards. That process of rejection or processing or whatever you want to call it is the psychedelic experience of having a banana. Mm -hmm. So okay, yeah. So that's a good equatability between the outside world and and the psychedelic experience in the sense that you know if emotivity in the psychedelic world is you know your your whatever being process you're in contact with, and uh, in in a, if in a psychedelic world a an objective process is simply the banana, you know. Or, or, you know, the the intrinsic qualities that eating a banana has that get represented by everyone democratically uh, who eats a banana. Um, it means that you know we're, we're, we can we can equate it to you know a universal experience uh, and and also the, the universal subjective experience. Um, so so yeah so th let's say that we we have a that, that the LSD tab or the DMT powder has an intrinsic quality to it which will give you distortion in time if you smoke it right mm -hmm. yeah, so that, that is the same thing as saying for example a banana or it's the same thing as, as saying that the world has an intrinsic quality of giving us timeness for example your perception of time changes. That's why I said, you know, empirically it's a side effect of that hallucinatory state yes. induced by a drug, you know? The, empirically the perception reducing changes. it. Yeah, it's a side the effect. Categorical. Yeah, yes. yeah in, in, yeah, in yeah, pharmaceutical, yeah, yeah. you know. But I think, I think because of the original distinction that you're making between the thing in itself and the categories. So, what is the thing in itself of the psychedelic object? Ugh. Yeah, you which guys, is a big question. Right? You guys are oriented towards spirit molecule. I understand. N not necessarily. No. No, it's it's more I, I, it's, it's more it's, defining or you know sketching. I, I, I want to tie it back always to prosaic day to day reality, like the, the same the object of the psychedelic experience, uh, which has a thing in itself, means that you know the same thing in itself might be perceivable in sobriety. Yeah. How do you get to a DMT state and you force your body to produce it and process it? You, you know, there's a very incredible way of doing it. If you do shamanic breath work? No. no. So there's this thing called Maybe. the Ajna Chakra, right? Um, device, if I'm not wrong. I'm actually going to quickly... It's, it's, a, it's technology. You know, yeah, I'm going to quickly, you know, Google oh, it yeah, so it I can, has, it, it, you know, it, pitch it the... It flashes lights onto exactly, exactly. your closed eyes. I want to I wanna be able to... Uh, device. And that elicits a sort of interpretation that is... I'm literally my own Jamie, you know? It's a little here, dude. <laughs> okay, so anyway, there's a, there's a device which was created by Apple's co-founders. One of the Apple's co-founder, after, you know, creating Apple and having the success, you know, at least the success in the start, he quit all of the tech and the finance industry and became a Buddhist, became a monk. And so he created this device, which is 
used for the activation of the pineal gland you know the, and it's called i think the ajna chakra you can google it but uh so basically what it does is that it 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 it, it produces a a light of some sort which which you know which concentrates on your pineal gland so you sit down underneath that light and that light you know projects the light on your on your middle of your head forehead uh, and and you just lie there in a meditative state put some music on it's kind of like float floating to you know you can compare it more or less yeah, but the assumption here is that there's a connection between the rotation of, of lights and how your retina yeah it's it's more them. physical in that way and, and that's and more disassociated for some reason it's, I don't know. it's strange how vision is somehow directly connected to the pineal gland and yeah, so that is the assumption, and, and so that's where Descartes' optics mm. comes in. It's a it's a really good work, honestly. It's a brilliant work. If anyone wants to read it, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a very good empirical, philosophical reductionism there. In in what is you know, what is visuals, what are perception, you know, all that stuff. Optics. I I was reading it when I was researching hypnagogia because it has relevant stuff there. Comments on chemical synthesis of 5-MeO-DNT, right? So the only reason why there's, you know, a necessity or an inclination towards commenting on this is because it is definitely, you know, um, a torn in history, in psychedelic histories, that we're, we're able to chemically, first of all, pre- reproduce a, a naturally um, existing substance in, in a lab environment but also we're just because there's a you know chemical synthesis you can you can synthesize a lot more chemically of the same you know of the same compound essentially and distribute it rather than everyone going to south america and you know going after these toads and them you know possibly becoming extinct at some point so we don't want to do that and that's why you know the whole 5-MU extraction, even though it's very, you know, complex in nature, mm-hmm. it's, it's possible still, you know, and, and that way you're creating, you're producing enough for everyone, enough for a- anyone who values uh, this psychedelic experience of 5-MU and manufacture it or whatever, because I definitely see this, you know, contemporary world moving ahead in time to, sort of, to such a, you know, narrative existential narrative that everything's probably going to be legal or just because of the modern day attitude more or less you know only extremely harmful substances would be just because we're you know like emphasizing so much on harm reduction nowadays i feel like it's not going to be an issue in in next 20 years we would literally be able to wave dmt walking you know if we're able to do it in a certain manner that it doesn't uh, violate any other person's personal right. You know, there's a definitely turn, turn in chemical, psychedelic chemical history or whatever. Body societies. What? Enlightened societies. Yeah. The word that comes up when you speak is Buddhistan. Because it's like you make a country... Because it's political. It's an inherently political argument that you... I mean, the past two concatenating MEO-DMT... 5 MEO-DMT production for the 
purpose of conservation for humankind, conservation use, regulation, etc., has political undertones. But that's the thing about any kind of political tone or narrative or anything. Politic politics is so almost you know fundamental to the structure of the society that it's impossible to eliminate its existence in any kind of conceptualization. So the alternative is to use it. You must succeed, not despite it, but through it. In yeah. a way that I'm building a career through, you know, the society. You know, I, I would much true, rather true. run around naked in a field, but, you know, I want to also thrive. So I must find a job. Good. So you want to start research into psychedelics? Dude, honestly, I'm so motivated for some reason. You have to I don't find know, something like whenever something like this happens in my life, for a few days, I'm extremely out of it. And I feel like I'm entering that. Like this morning I woke up and I was like, fuck yeah, dude. Like, you know, I'm like, fuck yeah. Like, what's, what's ahead? What? Have you been cited? Dude, how crazy would that be? Yeah. One of my papers on Academy is famous, dude. Like yeah. every fucking day I get like crazy notifications. Yeah, the Joker one. So that's why I post, for, I think I'm gonna keep posting on my Academy all um, film psychoanalysis articles. Yeah, people Yeah. So at, at some point, you know, Abraham and Strassman were discussing telepathy and all that shit, right? Sorry, and so I go like, okay, if telepath, if you know, telepathic <laughs> communication is a is a mental phenomenon, <laughs> it's you know, it's telepathy, it's a it's a mental thing. Yes. But synchronicity, on the other hand, is more more of a phenomena in general, more of a you know like a whole event and so it's kind of like you know different than telepathy because there's definitely a telepathic element to it when you do psychedelics with people you know right and so that's why it's highly recommended to do it with your friends and what about synchronous events you know no. yeah it's like identification of the same archetype significance on both ends you know it, i understand yeah it's it's kind of crazy and so but that can happen outside of our state you know, there's a there's a metaphysical impl implication to it. Like, what if it's it's more profound than it than it would like be a realm sober? To which it's it's always a question, you know. Yeah, yeah. So that's one thing that came up. That's something I'm probably gonna discuss. Whatever. But I don't think I think you're over fascinated with psychedelics. Dude, this, I am. I am. But because the stage state. But you should never uh, neglect the fact that this yeah, there's only an academic and, 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 and experiential to a higher degree you are Expe saying you when know. you're exploring this idea I understand it yeah. there's a space mm -hmm. that you and the person next to you were attached to and that's kind of what you are understanding the understanding came from both of you sharing a projection of yourselves in that LSD realm and that's mm -hmm. why you looked at each other and knew I'm saying that when you, when you re research that idea mm. uh, you should also Pay attention to the fact that this can happen entirely outside of psychedelics. Oh yeah, one hundred. Like when you have an understanding with someone, you you're both uh, inhibiting a realm outside of both of you, yet shared by both of you, that has nothing to do with psychedelics. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, you you can argue that you know reality is a hallucination, or whatever Anand said says, you know. But it's it's not it's not just just the argument between what are the possibilities within sober states and what what are the you know possibilities within the psychedelic state it's more you know w w why does that you know why 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 do we have to have a sober state um significant like yeah, like yeah definitely it happens on 
in sober states. Like definitely you have. Remark on the unconscious. It doesn't have to be that far into the unconscious. It can be no, an I, understanding. But, uh, into unconsciousnesses, you know. The, the, Shared realms. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't. It's not a question of you know. What are the possibilities between you know all these both states? So yes, this it's it's a question of probability, you know. Like fifty percent is gonna happen when you're sober, fifty percent is gonna ha happen when you're psychedelic. It's a, it's a fifty-fifty probability thing. But it's more of looking at experience and and studying it while this you know while you know. So this is the real. This is the sober state. This is reality as we perceive it, commonly share it, right? But now we have this naturally occurring compound substance that we're taking, and and now it's it's the heightening of that particular sober state. So it should never be, you know, yeah, definitely on, on sober states we can define these psychosocial, psychophysical models or whatever. But it, it, I feel like it's it's not just you know. Like, what is the drug effect? It's more than what is the drug effect. Just because psychedelics are so, such weird, you know, med medicinal compounds. Psychedelics have anti-addictive properties. High, high on anti-addictive, 100%. What about weed? Weed is psychedelic only, only, you know, to an extent that it causes the, you can, you can argue to a certain extent, the psychedelic afterglow. So it's, it's a euphoric feeling, but it, it's it's not you know high on any of the you know pharmacological side effects that I mentioned like hallucinations Absolutely or look it's it's a minor psychedelic it's a what, mi what, very what, very what, minor psychedelic what it gives it its supposed quality of addiction is is actually semi addictive only in so far as it's it's a sort of uh, it's it's a soft core uh, opium. That is essentially what, what weed is. That is why it's accessible to, to have a, as a lifestyle. You can't be tripping on mushrooms continuously. True. So just because you have such a profound hallucinatory experience within the psychedelic state and distortion of time, anxiety, rush within the come up, you know, you don't want to be doing that every day. You, your body just wouldn't want you to do it. So that's why it's non-addictive, you know. And on the other hand, you know, weed is like, weed just because it has such a euphoric and very minimal, you know, highness element to it, it's, it's, it's more addictive, you know, in general. And I think there's also, you know, like differences within the chemical structures and everything. I, I value the psychedelic experience highly because it's, it's one thing to know our psychophysical position within this universe in, in, in real space time you know, and in, in real uh, sober mental state, but it's another to, you know, navigate through heightened states or experimental states. So that's where the interest lies. Not necessarily, you know, be, being a delusional or being too, uh, uh, being that kind of person who wants to stay away from reality all the time. It's just more just a fascination of, oh, what can it's, it's you know, the scientific fa fascination because you're becoming more interested with, oh, what if, what if? It's more of an experimental fascination, if anything. I feel like cannabis is the ultimate, you know, drug of choice or my, my drug, you know, in a way. Do you have an in, interior hope that everyone should take drugs? Yeah. 
I, I think I respect free will enough to not impose it on anyone, but if I would encourage it, yes. Everyone yeah. should be exposed to the cannabis high at least, some sort of peeling of the lens through which you see the world at the age where that starts having an influence. Mm. For example, when you're, I don't know, 13, and you start imposing your own worldview onto the world unbeknownst to you. You're making actions, you're stuck and you don't know why. You're not even aware that you're in a box or in a bubble. At that age where those actions start having consequence, i.e. if you go into politics never having explored another sense of consciousness, that's far too late, but maybe at the age of 13, everyone should be exposed to an altered state of consciousness. Everyone. And I'm not saying by means of drugs. I'm saying by means of removing people from their bubble and just letting them know that there is an infinite what, what I just let you taste is just the tip of the iceberg you can etc I'm, I'm listening I'm listening entirely no but you you're, see what I mean no yeah but your attitude so if everyone should take psychedelics drugs yeah so it's more of an argument of you know what is the ideal psychological development for everyone you know does that become a politic? No, but as soon as your actions don't take into account the fact that other people see the world through a different point of view, as soon as your actions do that, and you completely forget that others see the world through a different point of view, and your own thought patterns are just imposed upon you by how you grew up, as soon as your decisions and existence in this realm are consequential in any way, you should be brought back to earth via any means. That can be psychedelic drugs, but not necessarily, not strictly, not only, not necessarily. That's the word. I wouldn't phrase it having the word must in it. I would say yes. Every everyone should have the accessibility to these compounds, and everyone should have the freedom to use them in whatever manner they they intend to. Obviously, you know emphasizing on the harm reduction. If these compounds are readily available to you and, and you feel inclined or you see value in them, you should try them. But I wouldn't, you know, break the free will thing and, and say that everyone must do it. You know, if, if you want to do it, you should do it. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. Yeah, but people are making decisions for us without being aware that they're in a bubble, that their point of view is not necessarily absolute truth. Yeah, but it's 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 a personal bias, you know. It's it's like oh, so I'm interested in object A, and so just because I know everything about object A and I'm so fascinated with every element of the object A that I wanna promote the object A and make sure that everyone tries it. It's 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 a very human thing, you know. Whatever experience that you have and you value the most, you would want it to everyone to have it so that they have the same, you know. A meaning of that experience that so that they can share the same meaning with it about it with you and so you know it's 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 a, it's a complicated thing yeah now that everything's getting legalized which is good but i don't know i wouldn't put must in that in that phrase i envision a world where one time when you reach uh i don't know sixth grade you have a guided psychedelic session with the shaman and this is in western schools I, I wouldn't say people in sixth grade should do it, but uh, I, I think know. sixth grade should be the like 
Fourth yeah. grade. That's too, that's too, third that's too grade, early, I, I think. Third I said. Is, is early. That's way too early. In third grade, I was still on my natural LSD. Okay, then what let, was let, let's be Jews and make it out like my mitzvah, sort of bar mitzvah. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. All right, so this is the Naked Out podcast. Um, Very well. And so this is a pregnant woman's lighter. Okay? Yes, <laughs> like, I can this, absolutely this see. This lighter was designed for women who smoke ten cigarettes. You know, <laughs> only ten cigarettes. No, 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 no. Wait, wait, wait. That's absolutely true. doesn't work more than ten times a day. Okay, so this is not right. So you know, these women who smoke ten cigarettes. And and they they're pregnant or whatever, right? <laughs> and so and so they end up getting these lighters because it has a safety element to it, right? Yeah, which you have to press so it very, takes very, time very, yeah. to press, and it's a low flame <laughs> to protect the baby. Yeah. <laughs> no, just for that, just for that, you know, low sense of safety or whatever, because you know she's pregnant, and but she still wants to smoke because she's pregnant, you know. And <laughs> so <laughs> she would go. Yeah. I have an idea no. talking about safety things for pregnant women. <laughs> this is a, you know, this episode is sponsored by um, Pampers or whatever it is. It's a, it's a special Trojans, on. Trojans. It's a special for, for, you know, pregnant women all around the globe. Uh, we discuss, you know, elements <laughs> of safety. Vladimir. All right, Vladimir. So, talking about safe things for pregnant women, yeah, and the rest of the audience, I have an idea for safe bottle of beer for pregnant women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, instead of this regular, what do you call it? Word. Yeah, yeah. The, the when you open the beer, the cap. Yeah, in, yeah, instead of a normal one, mm-hmm. you have a cap of a wine. You have a wine, it's like a... Yeah, <laughs> not beer. A cork. Dude, dude, okay, so now imagine, So you cork right? up beers. <laughs> no. So imagine this is a thing, right? And there's a pregnant woman who goes into a store and buys this, you know, beer bottle with a cork on it or whatever. But the guy tricks her, you know, and he gives her the cork that you would put in a champagne bottle. <laughs> Champagne's not a wine. Yeah. yeah, and so she opens it and she's gone, you know, because it hits her face, dude. So, <laughs> and so there's no, <laughs> and so there's no safety element there. So cork's wow. definitely good, you know. Yo, those people should not buy fake. No, only original ones, guys. Only original. <laughs> State, state, you know, state regulated. Authorized retail. Yeah. Authorized. Guys, quality controls, quality assurance.